Well, this is nice to be back together again, seeing everyone, and uh, I've uh, enjoyed the classes this morning and seeing people. I've enjoyed being able to bring our kids to class this morning. It's a it's a happy day for us, and so uh, it's, uh, let's make sure and, and smile and rejoice that we're together again. Um, so we're starting a new series of lessons uh, beginning this morning, and uh, our theme for the year, it's simple, it's one word, it's the word sent. And if you read through the Bible, you'll see example after example of people who were sent different places. In fact, there's a whole book uh, that's called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, the word acts basically means like the actions, the things that they did. And the word apostles means the ones who are sent. And so we have a whole book about the stuff that people who were sent do. Uh, we have a whole book about the actions of those who were sent. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. And this will not be, you know, if you wanted to, you could make the book of Acts, it's quite long, like a two-year study. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to summarize large portions of the text in, uh, in each sermon. Um, plus, when you realize that Acts is actually only half of the book, and the first half of it is the Gospel of Luke. If you're unaware, when you're reading your Bible, um, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, and then Acts. And uh, Luke is the first part of a work written by Luke to Theophilus describing the life of Jesus. And then Acts is the second part of that work written by Luke to Theophilus describing how the life of Jesus then manifests itself in the, in the church and, and how the church through Jesus ended up spreading to the remotest parts of the earth. And so you have like starting with the birth of John the Baptist and John and ending with the church in Rome, you have one huge story. It's two volumes, but we've for some reason stuck John right in the middle of it, um, which can be confusing. I mean, in fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke ends with the ascension of Jesus and the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus. You should read them together. All of that is to say, by studying Acts, you're studying the second half. And like, if you were to pick up a book and we said, okay, we're gonna read the second half of Anna Karenina or the second half of some book, like you would miss some really important things uh, that help establish characters, that help you, uh, you know, establish some of the themes to be looking for and all of that. That can happen if you only study Acts. So that's to say, to do a really thorough job, sure, you could spend two years on Acts, but you'd have to start by spending two years on Luke, and we're not going to do that. Um, we are going to, the first couple of lessons, however, make some connections between Luke and Acts. Uh, it is helpful to know what's going on in Luke before you get to Acts. It's helpful to know something about the characters and what they're doing and what they've been told in Luke before you get to the, the book of Acts. Um, so that is what our series is going to be. Hopefully we'll try to focus on some of the things that we see the church doing and we see the apostles doing that we could then implement into our lives. And, uh, and hopefully we can, uh, we can grow as a church because of that. I think it's a wonderful book. It's a challenging book and there's a whole lot to learn from it. Having said that, I do want you to turn with me to a couple of passages in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 to begin. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. There's a word that I want us to notice, or a couple of words, I guess. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, These all 
with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. These all, if you look at the verse right before it, it lists the apostles. Uh, and so it mentions that you have uh, the apostles, you have the mother of Jesus, you have uh, other women who had been accompanying uh, them, you have the brothers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, what you'll eventually see is there's uh, 120 people who gather together in an upper room. There are quite a few people who, after the resurrection of Jesus, start meeting together. And, and uh, what are they doing? Notice in verse 14, continually devoting themselves to prayer. That word devoting themselves, um, it's kind of an important one. It's used a number of times in Acts. We're going to look at three different times that it's used. Uh, but it's, it's a word that I think some translations say continuing steadfastly. Uh, but basically, it's a word that means you've committed yourself to something and you're going to do that thing. It is highly significant to you. It's something that's meaningful. You may have religious conviction behind it. This is something, it's not just happenstance that you're doing it. It's not just a mindless habit. It's an intentional devotion to something. You have devoted yourself to something. And what did they intentionally devote themselves to after the ascension of Jesus? To prayer. To, if that's with the apostles, that's with a number of people who were following Jesus, that's with his mother and his brothers and these other women. It's like, they are going to be a prayerful people. That's really, really important because something that that does is it connects you back to the Gospel of Luke, where prayer is emphasized in Luke, we'll see it here in a little bit, more so than any other Gospel, and it's not that close. Luke makes prayer a major point in his story about the life of Jesus. And as soon as Jesus ascends into heaven, you think, oh, that wonderful prayer life has gone with him. No, the prayer life is staying, and the disciples are the ones who are continually devoting themselves to it. In fact, if you look just a chapter over, look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 the story of Acts chapter 2 is a powerful one. Uh, the Holy Spirit falls upon the apostles. They begin speaking in tongues. A large crowd gathers. Peter then preaches the gospel to that large crowd that's there. He connects the activities of that morning to a prophecy from Joel 2. Uh, he also then talks a little bit about the life of Jesus and connects the, the, the resurrection of Jesus to, uh, to one of the Psalms and illustrates that Jesus though he was crucified by the people of God, has been raised to save the people of God. He is the Lord and he is the Christ. And when the people hear this, they are cut to the heart. They cry out, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter tells them to repent, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as he says this, people begin becoming obedient to the gospel. The church begins and begins to grow 2,000 people that day. And much like when God first created the world, you have that perfect scene in Eden of what the ideal world looks like. I think in Acts 2, you get the Edenic church. You get the perfect ideal picture of what the church looks like. The church does not always look like that. Even in Acts, it doesn't take you very long to realize the church doesn't always look like it does in those final verses of, of Acts chapter 2. But you do have this ideal you have this picture of what the church could and should be. You see, it, you see it pop up a couple of times, just this perfect picture, right? Well, as you read through that perfect picture of what the church should be, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, or to prayer. Um, what you see right there in that passage is that word appears again. 
That word, they're continually devoting themselves to something. They didn't just become Christians, but they became Christians and they made religious convictions that these are the things that are going to define them. These are the things they're going to commit themselves to. And part of that was listening to what the apostles said, to the apostles' teaching. Uh, part of that was fellowship. And, and I think that has more than just like getting together and playing games, as good as that is, it has to deal with like financially. They're sharing their stuff together. They're selling their fields. That's the, the idea of sharing all of your, uh, like sharing your wealth with other people or sharing your possessions. That is what koinonia is. It's fellowship. It's a sharing. It's a communion between people. But then also the breaking of bread and the sharing of meals with one another and perhaps the Lord's Supper also. But then he ends that by saying, and to prayer again. So before the day of Acts 2, they were all together and they had devoted themselves to prayer. Now in Acts 2, as the church has started, guess what the church is committing themselves to do? To be a people of prayer. Prayer is going to define the life of the church. As a matter of fact, you see this again. If you look at Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 6, um, I told you that perfect Edenic picture of the church where everything is great and wonderful doesn't last that long. Uh, you keep reading and you see that there are problems that can emerge and get in the way. And Acts 6 is one of those passages dealing with one of those problems. Uh, one of the things that the church also took very seriously was its care of widows. Uh, and the church knew who the widows were. The church made for that there was food provided for them. If a widow didn't have family to take care of herself, she could rely upon the church. The church took that as a responsibility, and it's a beautiful picture. In fact, even in, in post-biblical but early Christian literature, you'll see that there are writings we have from early Christians where they'll list how many widows there are in Rome because they know the widows to whom they're trying to feed. Like, it was a huge thing the church took very seriously. Anyway, you see that starting all the way back in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, there's a problem. Some of the widows are being fed, and some of them are being neglected. And it seems that some of those problems deal with ethnicity. Uh, seems that some of those problems are, are motivated based on, well, these are Hellenistic, like Greek Jews, but these are Jews who are really from where we are. And uh, so the ones who were the Hellenistic Jews, they weren't getting fed. And they're like, okay, that's a sin. That's not okay at all. Let's get this problem solved. Um, and so what they do is they assign seven people to be servants in, to, to go about serving. Uh, this, this might be some of the formation of what have come to be called deacons. Uh, that's the word for servant. And the verb of the word deacon, uh, the, uh, basically there's diakonos, but then there's diakoneo. Uh, the verb form is used a couple of times right here. So they're serving, they're deaconing in this passage. And what they're deaconing is they're deaconing to make sure all of the widows get fed. So they, they, they set aside men to make sure that this problem is solved and all the widows are cared for. But what's really interesting is who tells them to do this and why. And it kind of focuses on our point. If you look at uh, chapter 6 in verse 2, the 12, the apostles, um, they are, the problem is brought forth to them. They're like, what do we need to do to solve this problem? And what their answer, they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve uh, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who may be put in charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
Okay, so what it says is get seven people, good reputation, spirit-filled men, men you can trust, and have them go out and make sure that this job is done well. But not every Christian can do every ministry. So you have them take care of the widows, and the 12, we're going to keep focusing on the word. But notice he doesn't just say we're going to keep focusing on the word in preaching and teaching and evangelism and all that. He says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You know that word, devote ourselves to prayer? It's the same word that we've seen regularly used when they said they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, they devoted themselves to prayer. Then the church starts, in the early church, the perfect picture of it, they're devoting themselves to prayer. And then as problems begin to emerge in the church, the apostles say, I'm not going to stop devoting myself to prayer. Uh, you know, you, there might be a bunch of problems, I'm going to keep devoting myself to prayer. Do you know why? Because problems aren't the types of things that should get in the way of your prayer life. Problems are the types of things that should motivate a prayer life. And so you see the apostles will not neglect their call to be people of prayer. Why? Why are they so fixated on praying? Why is it that prayer motivates everything that they do? And, and even when problems emerge, they say, find men to take care of this. We're going to keep praying and keep preaching. Well, because they've spent a lot of time with Jesus, I think is going to be your best answer. And Jesus was someone who there were a million things that could have distracted him. There were a million op like obligations, uh, opportunities. There were a million uh, responsibilities that he had. There were people in need constantly. There are people who were coming to him day after day after day after day. And you know what Jesus did not neglect? Finding time to devote himself to prayer. You could get so busy doing and serving and working and, 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 and all sorts of things, even good things. But those good things can actually end up pulling you away from God. And prayer is one of those things that always centers you back around him. Jesus would not let himself drift from prayer. Uh, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that Jesus was in the habit of, of withdrawing from the crowds, going away from the people, and spending time in prayer. Uh, if, you, uh, if you look for themes or uh, patterns in the Bible, a lot of times people will, will kind of look for uh, basically the things that reoccur, and, and uh, when you see that, you realize, okay, this is something that maybe the church should notice, or maybe we should, we should try to practice as well. Um, if you're looking for a pattern in Luke, like one of the clearest patterns is almost after every major thing Jesus does, he goes off and he spends time in prayer about it. Um, you can look at Luke, uh, I mean, start, start in Luke chapter 3 in verse 21. This is at the baptism of Jesus. It says, now when the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. What's interesting about that is Jesus is, is praying at his baptism. I told you that Luke emphasizes prayer more than the other gospels. They all have the baptism of Jesus. Luke is the only one that emphasizes his prayer during the baptism. You wouldn't know about this prayer. He doesn't even say anything about the prayer, just the fact that he was praying and then the heavens were open. Why? Because Luke wants you to know over and over and over again, at every significant moment, Jesus is devoting himself to prayer. You can look at uh, Luke chapter uh, 5 and verse 16. And again, we see a pattern of Jesus. But Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. 
Jesus would regularly go. The word wilderness, uh, basically it just means like the uninhabitable places, the places where people are not. And that's where he would go and he would spend time in prayer. In chapter 6 and verse 12, it was at this time that Jesus went off to a mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And you know what he does the next day? He chooses his 12 disciples. He's about to pick from these crowds 12 men to be his followers, but he does not do that lightly. Even Jesus, the Son of God, before making a decision like that, he spends the entire night on a mountain in prayer. Uh, you can read through his teachings, uh, you know, chapter 6 and verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's not something you would commonly hear someone say about prayer. But Jesus has dedicated his life to prayer. He's devoted himself to it. He's pretty good at it. And if you're going to listen to someone on prayer, he's probably a good source to listen to. Uh, you can look at chapter 9 and verse 18. Chapter 9 and verse 18. This is uh, when Jesus uh, asks his disciples, who do, who do you say that I am and who do men say that I am? And they... And they declare he is the Messiah and the Christ. Um, notice what happens in verse 18. It says, And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do people say that I am? Uh, Luke is the only one who starts that story off by saying that Jesus was praying. Uh, and then you get to verse 28, the transfiguration. You can read the transfiguration in the other Gospels, but guess what Luke says about it? In verse 28, it says, some eight days after these things, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. The transfiguration is something that is initiated in prayer. You see this over and over again. And the disciples notice it. When you get to chapter 11 and verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. They see Jesus praying, and they're like, he does that all the time. I, I don't know how you feel, but I, it would be a struggle for me to go up on a mountain and spend the entire night in prayer. I kind of sleep sometimes, and, uh, and sometimes I run out of things to say, and sometimes I don't. And, and it's like, well, how do you do this? And what's fascinating is the answer that Jesus gives them. Uh, he doesn't tell them how to spend 12 hours in constant talking to God. He actually gives them a very short prayer. And I wonder sometimes, do we feel like we always have to fill our prayers with nonstop words from us? Uh, is there a place, perhaps, for a prayerful silence where I don't have anything else to say, but I'm going to stay in this communication with God? Uh, but, but Jesus, in this context, he gives them a way to pray. And, and I think it's interesting, when you get to Luke, what do they start devoting themselves to? prayer. Why? Because Jesus was devoted to prayer, and they saw it, and they went and they asked him questions about it. Luke has a couple of parables that are about prayer that aren't in anywhere else in the Bible, aren't in any of the Gospels. Par parables about an unjust judge who keeps ignoring this widow who's in need, but because she pesters him day after day after day after day after day, he finally says, fine, I'll give you what you want. Uh, and he says, learn from that, and don't, don't be worried about bothering God. And if you read that, you think, wait a minute, is God an unjust judge, you know, who just gets pestered into to helping us? And the answer is no. And that's really important that the answer is no. 
The answer is, if an unjust judge who doesn't want to hear from this woman will eventually give in to her, what about a God who longs to hear from you and loves you very much? He wants to be a good father. I mean, Jesus even asked the question, if, if fathers who are sinful still want good things for their sons, and if they ask for some food, you're not going to give them a scorpion, are you? Well, how much greater is your father in heaven? And how much will he be more willing to help you? You, you see these, these ideas like over and over again. I think they actually come to a head when Jesus is in the garden. And you see again, Jesus goes to pray in the Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And he brings his disciples and he tells them to do it also. He tells them to pray that you do not enter into temptation. And Jesus goes and he prays. But what happens? Jesus spends the night in prayer. And three times he comes back to see his disciples who instead of praying, they are asleep. And then temptation comes. In between Jesus and his disciples, one who spent the night in prayer and the others who failed to do so, who overcomes the temptation? Who's able to faithfully face the difficult road that is before him? It's Jesus. And the disciples, one by one, they fail, they flee, they deny. What you see is Luke has been building this, this idea around prayer to where once you get to the garden, you see what happens. The person who has committed themselves to prayer and those who have not. And I think that might be one of those reasons why the church was very, very <sighs> devoted. Very, very... Uh, certain to make sure that they were going to devote themselves to prayer. They were not going to let it become something that slipped around to the background of their lives. And I think if we are going to be a church like those you read about in the book of Acts, if we're going to be able to, to be a church that overcomes the problems that are thrown our way, if we're going to be a church that looks a lot like Jesus, perhaps we should notice that pattern and try to apply it to our lives and be a church that is devoted to prayer. Um, you can read through the whole Bible and you'll see that prayer isn't just a Christian thing, and it's not even just a Jesus thing. Uh, prayer is something from the earliest days of Israel and the earliest days of Scripture. You see people in communication with God. You can read beautiful prayers throughout the Bible, whether you're reading the prayers of Hannah or Daniel or um, even Jonah has a pretty good one. I don't, I don't know if he, <laughs> I don't know how much good it does for him, but, uh, but uh, Jonah has a prayer in there. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> We can talk about Jonah a different time. But, uh, but anyway, you can read through and you can see some really interesting and beautiful and, and well-thought-out prayers in the Bible. Luke begins by recording the words of Mary, sometimes called the Magnificat, when she finds out that she's going to have Jesus. She finds out she's going to have this child. And she has these beautiful words that are spoken of blessing to God. And, uh, and I love reading through the prayers of the Bible. And I love uh, seeing how they shape who Jesus is. And I love that the early church took very seriously the idea of devoting themselves to a life of prayer. And it's something that I believe with all of my heart we would do well as the people of God to continue that tradition of being a people of prayer. Uh, pray because Jesus prayed and we want to be like him. Pray because prayer works and it's valuable and God wants you to pray and God longs to hear from you and God answers prayers. It's it seems to me that some of the people I know who are the most confident in their prayer lives are the people who pray the most. 
you know, if you, if you pray every once in a while and, and you ask for something and then you don't get that thing, you're like, ah, prayer doesn't work. But it, the people I know who, through thick and thin, have a regular prayer life that they go to often and it's meaningful to them, over years, these are not the type of people who lose their faith in prayer. These are the type of people whose faith and confidence in prayer grows and grows and grows. Because I think prayer itself is an act of faith that we can engage in. Prayer is itself something that says, I have things going on in my life that I don't know what to do about, but I believe there's a God and I believe he can hear me and I'm going to speak. I'm not going to hear a word back and I'm still going to speak to him. You know why? Because I trust him. And I believe in him. In doing acts of faith day in and day out, I don't know exactly how it will change your situation. Situations are different and prayer is unpredictable. I have no idea how it will change your situation, but I am very, very confident that it will change you. It will change who you are. It will change the way you view God. And I believe it will change you for the better. Prayer is molding. And it molds us into the people of God the more we act out in faith and the more we act out in prayer. It connects you to God. You know, relationships are strengthened through communication. And prayer is one of our most direct ways to communicate with God. I could tell you a lot of stuff about prayer. You could read a lot of stuff about prayer. You can get a book and it'll tell you a lot of great things about prayer. There are good books written on prayer. Um, but I want to end by saying this. The best study of prayer you will ever do is not found by studying about prayer. It is found in praying. Dedicate yourselves to prayer. Say, you know what I'm going to do? I don't know how prayer works very well. I don't know what God's going to do with my prayer. I don't know how my situation will change. But I'm going to dedicate myself to praying to him every single day about the things that matter most. I'm going to set special time aside to follow the example of Jesus and sometimes stop doing work, sometimes get away from people and dedicate myself to prayer. I want to be devoted to prayer. I believe if every person in this church did that, we won't even be able to imagine the incredible things that our God can do. Prayer matters and God calls us to be a part of it. So because of that, by the way, um, the eldership here and, uh, and uh, a lot of the, those who care very much about prayer have decided that the Maryville Church of Christ is going to begin a new initiative called the 21 Days of Prayer. Uh, I actually read something a while ago, but then I've seen other numbers that, that suggest you know, there's more, it's not like a rigid rule, but, uh, but that habits are formed by doing the same thing for 21 days, again, some numbers are different, but I believe that if you do something for 21 days in a row, uh, it can become much easier to do with that 22nd day. In fact, it'll be harder to go that 22nd day without doing it. It'll become a part of what you do in your day-to-day -day life, and we want to encourage you to make prayer something you do in your day-to-day -day life, and if you would like some help and some thought, we've actually, uh, through prayer and through working, have some direction for things to pray about and for some areas that we would like uh, to engage in prayer that we're all going to be praying for and we invite everyone else to pray for. Um, if you follow us on Facebook, you can see that day one is today. 
and there is a, a topic and a prayer that's on our church Facebook page that you can get on there and that you can read and that you can pray to God today. Uh, tomorrow, there will be another topic and another prayer. And the next day, there will be another topic and another prayer. And so as you're on Facebook and you see these things, uh, stop and take time to pray to God. And that's something we can all do. Not only uh, is it on Facebook, we recognize not everyone's on Facebook, it is on our church webpage also. If you get on there, you'll see the 21 days of prayer and you can click on it and it will give you the topics and the prayers for each of the 21 days that you can engage in. Also, there are a limited number of printouts in the back there in the foyer um, that uh, have the same information on it. And regardless of how you get the information, we want to encourage you day after day to pray for some of the most important things going on in our church family, in our lives, in our community, and in our world today. Prayer matters. The early church devoted themselves to prayer, and this is a great way for us to join in that effort, to join Jesus in his prayer life. And so uh, we want to encourage you to do that and to begin today. If there is anyone here who would like the prayers of the church, we are a praying people, and we would love to pray for you. If there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, to have your sins washed away in baptism, naming Jesus as Lord of your life, we pray that you would let that be known as well. You could either come and sit on the front row, or you can talk to some of our elders who are in the library in the back. But if you have a need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.